the Gibbs free energies be the same on both sides of this dome, and then we got phase separation in the middle. So if you go this way from liquid to gas, you get a region in the middle where you have both liquid and gas in the container. So any questions about how that happens? Okay. slides here that are gray because I'm, I'm picking and choosing which are the most important slides of the review to go through together so that we have time to go here. Professor Oberhausen's talk. This is a gray slide. It was gray because it's mostly the same thing as the next slide. <laughs> okay. So I'm skipping several slides. Here I'm on the slide free energy of, of phase separation. And to remind you how this goes, if we have a free energy diagram that's about, uh, this is about mixing substances. So take atom A, atom B. Here, for example, we drew diagrams in terms of this is all, all A, and then I start adding a small concentration of B. This would be all B, adding a small concentration of A. And what we saw was that if we draw out the free energy diagram for uh, the homogeneous mixture, that is where I let the two mix as homogeneously as they can, then there's often that there has to be this downturn at the beginning any small concentration of some impurity will mix and will be homogeneous. So that definitely downturns. Then there's often an upturn in the middle, and the upturn means that you can phase separate in there. And in fact, the system will do that because then, rather than being at this high free energy, it's more favorable for the system to say, well, now wait a minute, I can just break myself up into these two, okay, and then I'd, I'd lower the free energy to this line. So you look for the lowest line uh, and that'll tell you what the system actually does, which is a phase separation between those two points. And this line is drawn as a tangent, not as the bottom of the minima. So any small concentration you certainly mix. In the middles, though, you, you often phase separate. But at high temperature, you, you mix them again. Okay? So at, at high temperature, this free energy curve actually tends to come down and it'll not be uh, concave anymore. So the reason we got mixing right at the outset was because here's what the entropy looks like as a function of concentration. And for any small impurities, the entropy rapidly goes up with an infinite slope. So very light concentrations of impurities are always entropically favorable, and therefore they're favorable according to free energy. You rapidly gain entropy, so a little bit of, of impurities are always good. And then in the middle, it kind of rounds out. Uh, here's what I was saying about it. at high temperatures, this free energy curve kind of tends to bend down. So at very high temperatures, it's more favorable to mix. And basically, that's because at high temperatures, energy dominates the free energy more. And Sorry, I don't know what I just said. I meant to say entropy dominates the free energy more because your free energy is internal energy minus tau sigma. So at high temperatures, entropy really matters. So at high temperatures, this free energy is dragged down by that term. And then, even though I could phase separate on this diagram, I'd be drawing a line from here to here. I'm, I'm always constrained to draw straight lines, and I will find no straight line that beats the actual homogeneous mixture. Here's a reminder of how first-order phase transitions went in the Landau theory of phase transitions. Here, for example, we were talking about a free energy in terms of the magnetization of the sample. And the magnetization will be whatever's the lowest uh, free energy. Okay, so all this represents as well, the system really sits here in this minimum. 
if it changed its magnetization, its free energy would go up a little bit, and this is what that represents. And first-order phase transitions happen as you change the temperature or pressure or something. One of the free energy minima passes the other. And so these are the situations where the system may not just automatically roll over into the new minimum. It may, in fact, be sitting in uh, an, a minimum, which then becomes not the global minimum, but the system can stay there for a while before it notices, before it has time to get over into the other state. So this is what allows supercooling and superheating. And we did some supercooling experiments in class. You can do some superheating with a microwave if you heat up a mug of, of water and then pull it out of the microwave and maybe put in some um, some instant coffee or instant tea. You can stand back when you do this, but you'll often see it sort of violently boil all of a sudden. That's because you superheated it. That happens when the system is in a local minimum. And then you do something to disturb the system and it rapidly figures out, oh, wait a minute, I'm in the wrong phase. It finds the other phase. The reason it takes a while for it to figure out which phase it should be in is because there's an energetic barrier to it finding that out. Here, for example, if we supercooled a vapor or supercooled a liquid, so the surrounding fluid represents the supercooled substance, and then little drops do form, but the drops turn out to cause energy. So this is a drop, for example, of liquid. If this is a surrounding supercooled gas, and this is, is little drops of liquid forming, inside the liquid, it's lower energy, but the surface itself of the bubble costs energy. That's why it doesn't progress right away. There's an energetic barrier. So each of these surfaces costs energy and costs energy and costs energy. But as I make the bubble bigger, then the surface to volume ratio goes down. So bigger bubbles then are the way to overcome this. So you just have to wait long enough for the system to fluctuate and randomly produce a big enough bubble of the new substance to where the surface area is negligible compared to the volume inside, and then it takes over the system. And we represented that here by this Gibbs free energy barrier as a function of radius of the uh, droplet of the, of the lower energy substance. So here, for example, for small droplets, they just roll back down the hill. Small droplets, no, not good enough. They have this energy barrier they have to get over. And then if you get one big enough, there's no going back. This, this thing now is big enough that where it'll roll down the, the uh, Gibbs free energy hill and take over the entire system. That was also why dew tends to form on substances. I just get two slides ahead. So because of the surface energy, uh, surface tension, surface energy cost to nucleation, then that's why you actually see nucleation happening at what we call nucleation centers and nucleation sites. So clouds, for example, form on dust. It's because in the water when the water grabs onto the dust molecules, there's not a surface energy cost well, there's not as much surface energy cost between the dust and the water, or here, for example, between the plant and the water. There is surface energy cost everywhere the water is exposed to the air, but less surface energy cost at the surface there. We also learned about um, plant-eating bacteria that secrete enzymes that help uh, ice crystals nucleate, makes it a little, uh, little less uh, energetically uh, costly to form ice crystals, and they'll use that to freeze plants and inside and keep the plant up. There we go. Snowflakes. Emphasizing the more important stuff. Snowflakes uh, were a really interesting uh, consequence of what can happen at a first order phase transition. So 
Ice, of course, has a very nice crystal structure in that the, the water molecules tend to form hexagonally. But if they grow in a very rapid condition, then they can sometimes form snowflakes. Where you can see the center here started up hexagonal because ice crystals have hexagonal symmetry. What happened then was that one of these points be became unstable because the point that's jutting out just a little bit at the, at the corner here can see more water vapor. So it's more likely to have water molecules land on it to freeze. It also, because of the point geometry, is more efficient at radiating heat. The reason it needs to radiate heat is because at a first order phase transition, every time a molecule goes from one phase to the other phase, it needs to give off or take in some heat. In this case, going from water vapor to, um, to the ice crystal, it needs to let off quite a bit of heat. So here, it's going to give out heat better at the corner. And then, since it's more favorable to grow crystals here, you eventually get an instability where it grows out rapidly at the corners. Any questions about stuff so far? Okay. Random walks. The uh, RMS distance that someone gets in a random walk being, I'm going to take the same length step every time, but in a random direction. So the RMS distance you get after n tries is square root of n times the step length. So, and of course that's an averaging process. Okay. If I had taken not the RMS, but just the actual average value of r, that would be zero. Because on average, I'm some distance away, but in a circular pattern on average. Okay. So the right thing to analyze here is uh, the root mean squared. We also looked at Fick's law of diffusion. Here this just says that particle currents tend to flow away from high concentration gradients. So if I have a higher concentration over here, low concentration over there, at the concentration gradient is where the particles flow. It's um, one of those laws that's just too simple to figure out how to write down. But there's, there's how you write it down, okay? Particles flow away from the higher concentrations. This D cleverly stands for diffusion constant, okay? So particle current is minus diffusion constant times gradient of concentration. We derived this, by the way, just out of random collisions. So just due to the fact that uh, thermal equilibrium says that the, uh, the individual molecules or the individual atoms will have random collisions with each other. Then we looked at, very briefly, the fluctuation dissipation theorem. Fluctuations <coughs> we quantify as some measurable property in the system, A, okay, and then we take uh, the deviation of A from its average value, square that, and take the average, okay? So that turns out to be uh, the expectation value of A squared minus the square of the expectation value of A. It's right here. So that's how we define fluctuations in some quantity. It turns out that when you measure this quantity in thermal equilibrium, it tells you exactly how the system will respond to an external driving force. And that's really neat that we can find a way to extend equilibrium thermodynamics into non-equilibrium situations. Non-equilibrium when I drive a current on the substance or drag it around somehow. Um, so we always found that the thermal equilibrium fluctuations were the same microscopic processes that would give rise to dissipation when we drove the system. An example of dissipation is take that pollen grain, put a leash on it, pull it through the water, Water molecules are randomly hitting into it. Those are the processes that cause drag. And we can measure, we can predict how much drag it will experience before we pull on the pollen grain, just by watching the thermal fluctuations in the water. 
So this, for example, is Brownian motion, the pollen grain jiggling in, in water. And this ended up being a random walk for the pollen grain. The average of R squared, depending on how long you waited. So the longer you waited, the farther on average it got away from its central starting point. Going quickly, because I want to switch ahead to get to um, Professor Overhauser's talk. Here I am, Nyquist noise. What was important here is if you see a circuit like this, an R with resistors and, and LC in the middle, we, it was an application of, uh, so not only did we use this to derive an example of fluctuation dissipation theorem, but it's a harmonic oscillator. And all harmonic oscillators are harmonic oscillators. Okay? So what that means is that their energy spectrum is n h bar omega. If you want to be really correct, you put the n plus a half in there. But shifting the energy doesn't affect thermodynamics, so we didn't worry about that too much. What we care about is the n h bar omega. And then we can do thermodynamics on the, uh, on the harmonic oscillator. And in the high temperature limit of, of this, this here, for example, was the average energy in the mode. Uh, thermally, and then in the high temperature limit, you go to equipartition, as you always do. And in the high temperature limit for a harmonic oscillator, you get one half tau per squared term in the harmonic oscillator. So we had a squared term from the inductor, a squared term from the capacitor, that gave us one half tau per squared term, or tau on average energy within that circuit. about three slides ahead. Magnetization was another example of the fluctuation dissipation theorem. This chi meant how easy is it to magnetize a substance when I apply a field. And that was directly proportional to the equilibrium, equilibrium being no applied field, equilibrium thermal fluctuations of the magnetization itself. The principle being if the substance is already has a very wildly fluctuating magnetization and you then try to apply a field, it's pretty easy to get it to do something. Whereas if it had been pretty stuck and not had many fluctuations, you'd have to work harder to magnetize the substance. That's what this physically is about. The, this is the fluctuation side, because that's our fluctuation dissipation value. This is the dissipative or response side of things. There we go. Time to go to the Bagwell lecture. Okay, so I brought my coat so I can walk over with you. Stuart 206. Don't forget your final. I'm going to have an off-star. Have an office hour today at the usual time. Tomorrow at the usual time. Monday, two to three, I'll also have an office hour. If you can't make my office hours, email me if you want to talk about class stuff. So, you know who Oberhauser is, right? <laughs> Professor Oberhauser got the National Medal of Science for discovering the Oberhauser effect. 